You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Today we uh, continue uh, in uh, our series on the Gospel of Mark that we introduced uh, last week, um, last week um, we we tried to roll out the epic introductory video of the Gospel of Mark, um, and uh, this week we nailed it. So uh, big thanks to Dan. Um, <clears throat> I love the intro. We won't show that every week, but just kind of. Uh, gives you a little bit of a glimpse of the story of Mark and some of the different aspects um, uh, of what we'll cover. Uh, but today you know, we're in Mark 1 verses 9 uh, through 15. Uh, and I couldn't help but think as Jesus makes his entrance, if you will, uh, in his public ministry, I couldn't help but think of the red carpet. Uh, I'm not a big uh, awards show guy, um, but um, but I, I was interested this week to learn a little bit more about the red carpet. And uh, in 1961, the red carpet was introduced at the Academy Awards, which is better known as the, as the Oscars. Uh, they uh, started using the, the red carpet to kind of welcome celebrities, which the history of this, if you're interested in this kind of thing, it goes back to the story of Agamemnon uh, in the fourth century, uh, the red carpet there. Thank you so much. Uh, let's give it up for Joel. Uh, great work. Um, <clears throat> But uh, anyways, that's a free uh, information for you, useless knowledge uh, that you can find on Wikipedia. So you guys might have put it there. I don't know if it's true or not. But, um, <clears throat> but from what I understand, uh, the red carpet uh, was introduced at the Academy Awards at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. Uh, recently, I was in Anaheim, and I just wanted to drive down Santa Monica Boulevard just so I could listen to the, to the song as we drove down um, the, the boulevard there. And um, it was, um, I don't know, it was cool, but it wasn't exactly everything I thought it would live up to in the moment. Um, but uh, nonetheless, uh, the celebrities that drive down, it's starting three years later. They introduced the red carpet in 1961. In 1964, they moved kind of the, uh, the show outside. Uh, and that's when the red carpet became a thing in, uh, in American um, uh, award shows. And so all the guests would arrive, they would step out of their limousines. And from that point forward, the red carpet was kind of where people made their appearances. And um, uh, and, and they, uh, I don't know that suits really are that big of a thing, but apparently the ladies' dresses, you know, are a big thing, right? Uh, and uh, everybody knows the designers and who makes the dress and all this stuff. And uh, a suit looks like a suit, you know, for the most part. Uh, but I suppose there are some special ones out there and, uh, and everybody's there. They're talking about the entrance and... Uh, I don't think people really talk about the limousine that they arrive in. I guess maybe that's a thing, uh, what kind of car you arrive in. They mostly talk about how you arrive, your appearance when you arrive. And the red carpet has become synonymous where like A-list celebrities uh, go to be seen. Uh, or if you're like a VIP, like a special guest, you know, who gets to be invited, it's like this really unique experience to be on the red carpet experiencing uh, all of this. Well, the red carpet, if it's all about making an entrance, uh, Mark 1, 9 through 15 is Jesus's red carpet moment. Uh, it's his formal entrance into his public ministry. 
Uh, it's his making an entrance before uh, the watching world. But what's interesting about Jesus' entrance is that though he would have been in every way, even exceedingly beyond an A-list celebrity, right? Like this is the maker of the universe, uh, the, the Lord of all. We've already seen in Mark 1, 1 through 8, that Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Messiah uh, who was promised to come to deliver us from our sins. He is the Son of God himself. Uh, So Jesus is no doubt an A-list celebrity, but he doesn't exactly get the red carpet treatment when he arrives. Uh, In fact, uh, if... Uh, if most celebrities roll up in a limousine of some sort, you know, perhaps made by, um, you know, Mercedes or, or some other, uh, who I don't know who the limousine makers are these days. Uh, we'll go with Ford, uh, you know, for, uh, for the locals. Uh, maybe Ford makes a good limousine. Um, it would be, instead of riding up in a limousine, uh, it would be like Jesus rolling up in my old, uh, what I used to own, I don't own any longer, my 1998 teal Ford Ranger, uh, that the odometer didn't work, uh, stick shift, that uh, you weren't 100% sure uh, if it was going to make it uh, on a trip, so much so that I had to sell it before I made this trip. Uh, it, it was a clunker in every way that I paid $1 for, um, and, uh, and I sold it for $1,000. It was one of my best uh, investments I ever made. Uh, somebody gave it to me uh, graciously, um, and, uh, and, uh, and then I sold it. Uh, and so... Um, <laughs> Gentle as dove and shrewd as serpents, guys. That's, uh, that's what we're called to. Um, but it would be like Jesus rolling up in a clunker to the red carpet because we see it introduces Jesus as coming in those days from Nazareth in Galilee. Nazareth is a city that isn't so much that it's a bad city, but it's a city of just no renowned. It's a city of no acknowledgement. Even in the uh, early uh, uh, pre-New Testament times, it wasn't a city that that was known for much. In fact, uh, the words of Nathaniel in John 146 are kind of uh, reflective of the nature of things when he said, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? And yet here is Jesus. He was born in Bethlehem, according to the prophecies, but raised in Nazareth. And he begins his ministry coming from Nazareth in Galilee. And it says he was baptized in the Jordan River by John. I want us to see three truths about Jesus and his red carpet entrance in Mark 1, 9 through 15. The first is that Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. We see in verse 9 that it just simply states he was baptized in the Jordan by John. And this is somewhat of an interesting statement, and I want to submit to you that it shows us that Jesus identifies with those he came to save. Jesus identifies with those he came to save. The other gospel accounts, Matthew and Luke in particular, give um, extended treatment to uh, John's reaction to Jesus coming to him to be baptized. It was somewhat of a scandalous thought that if Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Messiah, Son of God, what does he need to do uh, for a baptism of repentance, which is the baptism of John? And so it says uh, in Matthew that John the Baptist says, Jesus, this isn't right. You should baptize me. I shouldn't baptize you. And Jesus responds, and he says in Matthew 3.15, that it is necessary in order to fulfill 
all righteousness, that Jesus has come, uh, and in his coming, uh, he not only is sinless, as we're going to see uh, in a moment that's emphasized, but he is obedient to God the Father in every way. So it's not only that he doesn't sin that makes him the capable Savior that he is, but it's that he actively obeys God in everything uh, that makes him the Savior that we need. And so we see that he's fulfilling all righteousness in this baptism, but it's not a baptism that he needs. He has no sin of which he needs to repent. So why would he be baptized? I think the picture of baptism that we talked about last week, part of baptism is this sense of identification. Uh, as those who came to John in Mark 1, uh, 4 through uh, 6, as we saw last week, they came confessing their sins and preparing themselves, identifying themselves with the Messiah to come, uh, submitting them, themselves fully to him. And Jesus comes and he identifies with those he's come to save. He doesn't, Mark doesn't include any of the other statements that the other gospel writers does. He just gives us the bare facts, Right. Uh, give me the facts, please. Uh, and uh, he gives just the fact that he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And I think when we understand that this baptism is one of identification with those he came to save, it's, it's a reminder that Jesus' baptism at the beginning of his ministry actually points to Jesus' death at the end of his ministry. And, and it's in, in this way, Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, he says, I have a baptism to undergo. And how it consumes me until it is finished. Jesus said this as he prepared himself to go to Jerusalem to go to the cross. You see, what takes place in the water, or what is portrayed in the water, doesn't actually take place in the water. It points us forward to Jesus' death on a cross. Jesus' baptism in the Jordan is a picture of his baptism on the cross, if you will. And one, one commentator said it this way, Sinclair Ferguson with a Scottish accent, uh, so I can't do that part for you, but just envision me with a Scottish accent as I say this. As we see Jesus in the water, he already indicates how he will become our Savior. By standing in the river in whose waters penitent, penitent repentant Jews symbolically washed away their sins, he allows that water polluted by those sins to be poured over his perfect being. He comes to the river in which sinners confess their sins and were baptized to ready themselves for the Messiah. And he says, I've come for you. He's plunged beneath symbolically our sins, if you will, and conquers even sin and death and rises up out of the waters. Uh, it's the very picture of our salvation, of what Jesus would accomplish in his death and resurrection, plunged beneath the judgment of God before our sin and raised victoriously from the dead. And it's why baptism, which we will be uh, practicing next week, um, and uh, if you're interested in being baptism or have questions about baptism, we'd love to talk to you either for next week or for weeks to come when we have another baptism service. It's why baptism is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. Because we say all our sins, which would condemn us uh, and lead to our judgment, have been buried in Christ. When he died on the cross, our sins were nailed to the cross and the judgment and the guilt and the shame that we bear for them were put to death there on the cross. And when Jesus rose up out of the grave, he gives new life to everyone who will trust in him. And then baptism as believers today is a symbolic statement of what Jesus has already done for us. Uh, which in this case for Jesus, Jesus' baptism is symbolic on the front end of what he's going to accomplish on the back end on the cross. 
So we see that Jesus has come being baptized, not in order uh, to, to confess and repent of his sin, but in order to accomplish and to provide the means for the forgiveness of sins for all those who confess their sins and are baptized. And so we see he not only identifies with those he's come to save, but in verses 10 through 11, through the symbolic coming down of the Holy Spirit and the uh, affirmation of the Father, we see that Jesus is identified as the beloved Savior. Uh, We see him identified as a beloved Savior in two ways. It says, as soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Here we see the divine approval and power through the Holy Spirit. Uh, we see the Holy Spirit is symbolized as a dove. Uh, now, this imagery of a dove, I think, makes perhaps us think of two places when we think of the Old Testament. One, it makes us think of Genesis 1, uh, verse 2, in which it says that the Spirit hovered over the waters at creation. And here we're reminded that Jesus, as he begins his ministry, that Jesus' ministry is a work of new creation. Um, But it also, uh, I can't help but think of the flood, of Noah's flood, in which God brings judgment upon the whole earth, and Noah sends out the dove uh, in order to see if the judgment is over uh, and if renewal is about to come. And it's, it's that same type of imagery. I don't literally think that a bird comes down. I think this is the imagery. It was like that this is what happened, uh, is what uh, he is saying. The Holy Spirit comes down. The language is like a dove. Uh, it's meant to, meant to be the symbolic picture of what it must have been like seeing the Spirit come to rest upon Jesus. It's a picture of the new work that God is doing. It's a picture of God's presence a picture of God's power through the Holy Spirit, all that Jesus would do in his ministry, through his teaching, through his miracles, to his work on the cross and his resurrection was done by the power of the Spirit, that the Spirit of God had come upon him. It wouldn't be unlike when David was anointed as king and the Spirit came upon him uh, so that he could carry out his roles as a king. It would very much be as if everyone would see that Jesus is indeed the anointed king who was promised the Spirit has come upon him to accomplish his work. And it says here that the heavens were, were torn open. Uh, this, this language of torn open is used in a few different places in the Bible. It, it literally references like division, the idea of something being torn apart. But the other significant use of the term in the Gospels in particular is at the death of Christ. Uh, you might recall this at the end of the Gospels as Jesus dies. The moment Jesus dies on the cross... The gospel writers record to us that the temple, which divided the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, uh, the the curtain that is in the temple, which was this barrier to to the access to the presence of God. At the moment Jesus died on the cross, it says that that curtain was torn from top to bottom. And it was as if uh, through the death of Christ, we see, not as if, but actually is true, that we have access to the presence of God. It's that same type of thing that's happening here at Jesus's baptism the heavens were torn open as evidence of the presence of God through the Holy Spirit upon Jesus the Son of God but do you know that at the end of his ministry as Jesus died on the cross the temple court curtain was torn open uh, so that we would have evidence of our access to the presence of God through the completed work of Jesus the Son of God here, here we see that the access that, that Jesus had to the presence of God to carry out his ministry, but it's also this glimpse as we think of the entirety of the scriptures of the access that we will have 
to the presence of God through the work of Jesus. But there's also another interesting, I think maybe just to echo here, uh, to Isaiah 64. Verse 1, we know that Mark likes Isaiah. He's already quoted uh, the prophet Isaiah, and he sees the ministry of Jesus as being a fulfillment of the servant promised in Isaiah. Uh, and in Isaiah 64, 1, it's, it says this. It, there's this prayer that the prophet prays, God, oh, that you would rend or tear open the heavens and come down. And he goes on to say, God, all of us have become like something unclean. All of our righteous acts are polluted garments. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. The, the, the prophet was crying for God to tear open the heavens and come down and do something about Israel's sin. And Mark is recording here, I think, in a way that shows us that God has indeed answered that prayer. He has torn open the heavens and God himself has come down to do something about our sin. Not first coming to judge our sin, but coming to save us from our sin by being judged in our place. Friends, that's the hope of the gospel. That's the unique hope of the Christian is that God did not judge us first, but he judged his son in our place so that we would be spared God's judgment and be given the forgiveness of God and new life in Christ. All who call upon him will have forgiveness of sins and new life in him. And Jesus has indeed come to accomplish that work. He, he lives under the approval and the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the work of redemption that God has given. And a reminder that through his perfect work, uh, through his work of redemption, we ourselves will have access to the divine approval and power of God through the Holy Spirit. But it's not only, not only visually do we see the approval and the power of God, uh, of the Spirit, but we also hear vocally, if you will, or verbally, the divine approval and power that comes from God the Father. Notice in verse 11, it says that not only does the Spirit descend like a dove, but a voice comes from heaven. All three Gospels record this. And it says that voice from heaven that, that others must have saw with John the Baptist said, You are my beloved Son, and with you... I am well pleased. The voice of God the Father affirming the Son of God after the Spirit of God descends upon him. All of this builds up here in these first few chapters to just remind us how important the Old Testament is to our understanding of the New Testament. Um, I think sometimes as, uh, as young Christians, like we, we love the New Testament because it records so much about Christ and practically what it means to follow Christ. And sometimes you get to the Old Testament and maybe you've done a Bible reading and you, you get into you know, Leviticus and you stop. And so you, some of you have read Genesis and Exodus into Leviticus like five, like 50 times, right? But it's hard to get from Leviticus you know, over to Isaiah, you know? So we go Genesis, Exodus, Psalms, and Matthew, you know? Like we're, we're good to go, like... And, and that's a good foundation, you know, no doubt. But we need the, we need the Old Testament to understand the new. And, and, and in fact, throughout the New Testament, there are 260 chapters in the New Testament. Of those 260 chapters, all but 12 of those chapters have some clear citation, allusion, uh, echo, in which we see some theme or pattern uh, from the Old Testament. So almost all but a dozen of the chapters of the New Testament refer back to the Old Testament. That's some 63,000 cross-references uh, from within the Scripture referring back to various parts of the Scripture. That's not just the New Testament. That's even in the Old Testament. There are Old Testament citations of prior Old Testament text. The prophets are referring all the time to Exodus and Deuteronomy. 
In fact, they're, they're often called the covenant enforcers because they're reminding Israel of their failure to keep the, the Mosaic covenant, which is why they find themselves in the mess that they're in, because they've broken God's commands. Uh, and so we see all these references. And here's a picture of what this looks like um, on this next slide. <clears throat> these are all, you can't really tell, but uh, it's like gray and then white, gray, white. This is like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you know, etc., uh, and all the way over to Revelation. And some of them get really small, so uh, maybe we'll include this in our uh, 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 the lighting um, and the word blog. But all of these these uh, arches are a reflection of cross references within the scriptures, in which say something right here and say Matthew is going back all the way to Isaiah, um, like we saw in uh, excuse me Mark one verse three. Uh, references Isaiah 43. Uh, something over here in Revelation might refer back uh, to something that is said in the book of Malachi. Do you know that Paul quotes Jesus and the teaching of Jesus in 1 Corinthians that Jesus says in Luke chapter 10? Uh, we see all kinds of cross-references, and, um, and, and this is just kind of this picture. It's done. There's, there's some uh, rhyme to the color that I, I don't have the explanation for, but it's the kind of this beautiful picture, a rainbow of sorts, a reminder of God keeping his word and his promises and the interconnection between the Old and the New Testament. Um, and I say all of that because when, when God the Father says, you are my son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased, all of that, that statement has some type of connection and reference to the Old Testament. So just consider this. You are my son. We've referenced this last week, so I won't go into great depths, but is, is inevitably referring us back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, when God makes a covenant promise with David. And he says to David, what seems to be in reference to Solomon, uh, but clearly we know that it has an aspect that's fulfilled in Solomon, but also an aspect that's clearly something more special because God says that through David's son, he will build a house for his name and I will establish my throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he will be my son. And it says of Solomon, when he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as I removed it from Solomon or from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. You either have a throne forever through the unbreakable succession of Davidic kings from this point on until the end of history or at some point in time, there is somebody from the line of David who comes along as king and doesn't die, but lives forever. Amen. And that's how Jesus is the fulfillment of the son, uh, the Davidic son, and the promise of a kingdom to come through David's son in 2 Samuel. You are my son. But we also see this unique language of my beloved son. And this is only seen elsewhere in Genesis chapter 22. Some of you might hear that and be familiar with that story. It's the story when Abraham goes and is called upon God to offer, called upon by God to offer Isaac, his only son, whom he loves, his beloved son, it says in Genesis 12, verse 2, to offer him on the Mount, Mount of Moriah as a burnt offering before the Lord. 
And ultimately, we see that God isn't intending for Isaac to be a burnt offering, but is, uh, is testing the faith of Abraham. And Abraham trusts God so much so that he trusts him, believing that if God actually asked him to sacrifice his son, that God would raise his son from the dead. He says that we go uh, up to the mountain and the servants he leaves behind, and he says, we will return. And his son is like, hey, dad, it's cool that we're going up to the mountain to make an offering. Uh, here's the wood. But where's the sacrifice? And he says to his son, the Lord will provide. And so they go up to the mountain and there as, as he's about to offer his son, his only son, his beloved son, as it says in Genesis 12, God speaks and says, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything with him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. And Abraham looked and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horn. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. Here in Genesis 22, we see that God spares the beloved son of Abraham and offers a sacrifice in his place. But we're going to see in the Gospels that Jesus is the beloved son whom God sends for us not to spare him, and offer a sacrifice in his place, but for him to be the sacrifice in our place as our substitute. The beloved son comes to be the sacrifice. So we see that uh, Jesus is the son promised in 2 Samuel, the beloved son of Genesis 12. And then it ends with this statement, with whom I am well pleased, which takes us to Isaiah 42. In Isaiah 42, we see this promise concerning a servant. And it says of this servant, this is my servant, I strengthen him. This is my chosen one in whom I delight, in whom I am well pleased. And notice this, I have put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. You put all this together, the reason the Old Testament is important to the New Testament is that Jesus is the promised son of Abraham who brings God's blessing to the nations. He's the promised son of David in whom God will establish his kingdom forever. And he is the promised servant who will come and the spirit of God will be upon him and he will bring about justice to the nations. He will bring about salvation to the nations. Isaiah 53, which follows a few chapters later, we see that the servant with whom God is well pleased, upon whom his spirit comes in order to bring about justice to the nations, that servant is the suffering servant who will be crushed by the will of the Father in order to bring about the forgiveness and the healing of those who have sinned against God. So we have all of this taken together to show us how Jesus is a fulfillment of the Scriptures, but also we have this Trinitarian picture of God. The Scriptures show us that there is one God, and that one God has revealed Himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son or the Father. And the Son is not the Father or the Spirit. But all are equally and eternally God. Equally and eternally divine. And it's only the Son, the second person of the triune God, who takes on human flesh, that comes into the world according to the will of the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, in order to accomplish the work of redemption himself. This is the heart of who God is and how he has revealed himself. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, divinely approved and empowered by the Father and the Spirit to accomplish our redemption. He didn't come from someplace special, but he is himself special. And he has come to accomplish a special work 
the work of our redemption. And it reminds us here as Jesus identifies with those he's come to save and is revealed as the beloved Savior. It's a reminder to us of how God chose to bring about our salvation, not just from sitting on high and, you know, commanding. God, God spoke and he created. And yet in our redemption, he didn't just speak and accomplish our redemption. He sent his son to accomplish our redemption. He drew near to sinners. That's the picture of the Savior that we have, one who draws near to sinners. <clears throat> and just like last week, we, we saw that we ought to follow Jesus in many ways. We should reflect John who sought to, um, to decrease so that Jesus might increase, that we live with Jesus at the center of our lives. Here I can't help but say we ought to also seek to, to pattern our lives after our Savior who drew near to sinners. If he drew near to sinners, identifying with those he came to save, our beloved Savior who took on flesh in order to rescue us, how can we also not live our lives in such a way that we draw near to sinners? Being reminded that we ourselves are first sinners, that God drew near to us to save and rescue us, and that we need the gospel, just as Victor and Rebecca prayed and reminded us that our only hope is indeed the gospel. This hope of his returning is, a, uh, is only good news if when he first came, he died and rose from the dead in order to accomplish our salvation. Because when he comes, he's coming back to, to take us to be with him and to bring judgment on all those who don't know him. So how can we, in the meantime not live in such a way that we draw near to those who don't yet know him so that they might be ready for when he comes, as well as ready our own hearts uh, by, by drawing near and dwelling deeply in the hope of the gospel. Jesus came to save sinners. He is our beloved Savior. How can we not live in such a way that we stay close to him, never getting over the fact that we were sinners saved by his grace, that we were the sinners he came to save, that we... Uh, were the sinners with whom he identified so that he might draw us to himself. Let's live in such a way that we never get over that ourselves and we live in such a way that we make that known to others. And so while we see the the heart of Jesus for sinners, there's also uh, that we want to emulate. There's also a sense in which we can never emulate this next truth about Jesus. But it provides us such comfort. In Jesus' temptation, we see that Jesus is our sinless Savior. We see the spirit that came down gently um, identifying the approval and the power of God upon Jesus now immediately thrust him or drives him into the wilderness. And it says he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. I I think that both the baptism and the temptation of Jesus give us a a picture uh, in Mark uh, of how, um, how Jesus is in many ways the representation of Israel, the true and better representation of Israel. He experiences what Israel experiences, but where they failed, he succeeds. Where they disobeyed, he obeyed. We we have this this picture of Jesus now being driven uh, by the Spirit into the wilderness. It, It reminds us of Israel, and then it even kind of reminds us of Adam, because Adam was in the garden and was tempted by Satan, and we know how that went. He failed as he and Eve took of the fruit and rebelled against God. Jesus now is not in a garden, but is in the wilderness. 
And there he is in the wilderness with Satan being tempted. And it says that he's with the wild animals, which this is this picture. It's like the only reference to this in the Gospels. It's this picture of, uh, of creation marred by sin, the wild animals that would have been uh, used later in the uh, Roman times to attack people in the Colosseum. Uh, it's this picture of fallen creation. And there Jesus is in the wilderness exposed to all of this and being tempted. But when he is tempted, he obeys. When he is tempted, um, he doesn't fail. Where Adam failed, Jesus doesn't. The, the first Adam fails when tempted. The second Adam, Jesus obeys when tempted. And he's sustained by the angels who are ministering to him. But I, I mentioned that it's not only Adam, but this picture of Israel. That, that Jesus is, is kind of this new Israel, if you will. You see, God had called Israel out of Egypt uh, and delivered them through the Red Sea. And was going to take them into the promised land. But because of their sin, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then God brings them through the wilderness. Uh, and, uh, and though they had sinned through unbelief and idolatry, God brings them into the promised land. And there they are in the promised land. But there's this whole pattern of, of sin and unbelief and idolatry that leads them once more out of the promised land into exile. And as they're in exile, what is the hope that the prophets give? The hope is that God is going to deliver you once more out, uh, of the, out of exile, back into the promised land. First it was in Assyria, then it was in Babylon. Later they're conquered by the Persians. Uh, then we have this kind of glimmer under Ezra and Nehemiah that the temple is rebuilt, the wall of Jerusalem is rebuilt, but there's still this sense of incompleteness in which God hasn't delivered Israel from their bondage and from their exile. Well, Mark is showing us that Jesus has come to bring about a new exile. It's not first a geographical um, exodus, but it's a spiritual exodus. He's the sinless Savior who has come to deliver his people from their spiritual bondage. He has failed. He has obeyed where Adam failed, but he has also obeyed where Israel failed. He's the true and better Adam. He's the true and better Israel. He is for us the sinless Savior, the one in whom without his sinless work and his perfect obedience, we would have no hope for salvation. And Mark paints that picture in a straightforward way in showing us that he was driven out into the wilderness to be tempted. Both Matthew and Luke show us how the devil tempted him, particularly as it related to his role as Messiah, not to trust God and to seize power and to avoid the cross but Jesus committed himself in obedience to the Father as our sinless Savior so that he could go to the cross and be our perfect substitute. Hebrews says it this way, that we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Do you see the application of the truth of Jesus as our sinless Savior? The application is because he is our sinless Savior, we can draw near to him to find help in our time of need. Because he is our sinless Savior, he has not only accomplished our salvation, but has made a way for us to approach him in our time of need to find grace to help us. Jesus is the one who came to save us from our sin, but he is our sinless Savior. And, and what, a, what a word for us. Sometimes it can be easy to think Jesus being sinless seems so, like I, so unconnectable. I can't connect with that because all of us are marked by sin. And yet here we're reminded that his sinless nature is actually an invitation for us to draw near to him to find help. So whatever you're struggling with, 
wherever you're struggling with sin, whether it's a long pattern of sin, maybe, maybe it's a recent struggle with sin, maybe, maybe there's just some lingering things that, that are there and, and you haven't been able to, to really deal with it. Maybe there's been a lack of conversation with others and community. Maybe there's been this false thought that you've got to do enough in order for God to be pleased with you, to forgive you. Let me remind you that Jesus came not so that sinless people would perfect themselves in order to earn his grace and his mercy, but Jesus came, the sinless Savior, for sinful people so that if they were honest with their sin, they could find the help that they need by coming to him. The only thing that keeps sinless people from finding grace and mercy is our our own pride that keeps us from humbly coming to God to confess our sins and to confess our need for him. And then thirdly, we see here that Jesus is our Savior, King. We see that Jesus comes, this description of his early ministry, like we saw, he comes into Galilee, no Jerusalem for sure, into Galilee, this place marked by Jews and Gentiles. uh, Together, Jesus comes in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. We saw last week that this announcement of the kingdom is really not about geography, but it's about God's reign. It's about a person. Isaiah 52 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings good news, and proclaims to Zion, your God reigns. That's the announcement of God's kingdom. God reigns. That's the kingdom of God, is the reign of God that has come in Jesus. That's why the kingdom is near at hand is another translation. And yet at the same time, we know that when Jesus returns, the kingdom is going to come. And we're supposed to pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So is the kingdom now? Yes. Is the kingdom to come? Yes. Should we be praying for the kingdom to be on earth as it is in heaven now? Yes. You got it? It's the kingdom. I, heard, I was thinking about this recently. Sometimes when you explain the kingdom, it can be confusing. I uh, sometimes have conversations with, uh, with my son, uh, my three-year-old. And he'll ask me stuff like, and this happened with my daughter as well when she was younger. She, they'll ask stuff like, are we in Ann Arbor or are we in Michigan? Um, are we in the United States or are we in Michigan? And, and when you explain it to him, you're like, Yes, right? Like we are in Ann Arbor, which is in Michigan, which is in the United States. So right now you are in the United States. Yes, we are at the neighborhood park, but you are in Michigan and you are in the United States. Yes, we are in an airplane, but we are in in the United States. Yes, the grandma and grandpa live in North Carolina, but that's also in the United States, but it's not Michigan, right? And so you're explaining the geography to them and, and mostly you try to explain it and they just look at you and they're like, can we kick a ball now? You know, can we go on with something else? <clears throat> explaining the, the kingdom of God sometimes can be like explaining geography to a child. Not because the kingdom is like uh, U.S. geography per se, but our perception and understanding of the kingdom is akin to a three-year-old's perception and understanding of where they are located at any given particular time. What's important is that we understand that the kingdom of God refers to the reign of God that's come in Jesus. It is both already and not yet. It has come about through Jesus, and yet it will come again when Jesus returns. And while we can sometimes be a little fuzzy explaining and fully grasping the kingdom being already and not yet, what's most important is that we understand how the kingdom operates. And Jesus tells us here how the kingdom operates. He tells us that belonging to the kingdom, entrance into the kingdom, comes about through repentance and belief. 
Repentance is turning from our sin, and faith is turning to God. They, they really go hand in hand. Repentance can never exist on its own. Sinclair Ferguson said it must always be accompanied by faith. Only through receiving the good news of the king can we turn our backs on sin and live in a way that pleases God. If you think of two sides of the room when you're walking towards sin, repentance is turning from sin, turning your back uh, to, to sin and, and turning to God in faith, in reliance, in allegiance. And life in the kingdom begins when we make that initial turn from living for ourselves in our way to faith in Christ. But then the, the life that we live throughout the kingdom as we await Jesus to come and his kingdom to come fully, we, we live a life marked by continually turning from our sin and continually renewing our faith in Christ. In short, to repent and believe is to say to Jesus, you get to call the shots in my life. To repent and believe is to say, Jesus, I'm fully trusting you. You sit on the throne of my heart. It's us dethroning ourselves, stepping off the throne and enthroning Jesus on our hearts to cause the shots of our life, who has the affections of our heart and whom we worship and, and who, who gets to call the shots in our daily life. The response to the kingdom of God that has come in Jesus, the response to the Savior King is to say, Jesus, your way, not mine is to say, Jesus, I live for you, not for me. It's exactly what John the Baptist said. May I decrease and you increase. It's, it's our heart's submission and recognition that Jesus is indeed the sinless Savior, who not only identifies with us, but who is the beloved Savior who actually accomplishes our salvation. So as we hear Mark 1.15 and this call to repent and believe the good news, it's going to introduce us to our time of taking the Lord's Supper this morning. I'm going to ask Rebecca and Victor to come and play lightly as we transition to a time of taking the Lord's Supper today. I really have two questions for us, though, as we think about taking the Lord's Supper and we think about preparing ourselves for that and responding here to the Gospel of Mark. One is it relates to salvation. One relates to the Christian life. It's been said and put in different ways, um, but the, I think the, the most direct way to say it as we think about Jesus' invitation to follow him as it relates to salvation is to say it this way. If you were to die today, God forbid, but if you were, are you confident that you would spend eternity with God in heaven? You see, the, the invitation to repent and believe is actually the way in which we can have that confidence. To have the assurance of knowing that we spend eternity with God when he returns and we're given new life and forgiveness now as we await his return. That's the offer of salvation. And just as Jesus showed up and, and preached that message, my prayer this morning is that God would enable me to show up and preach that message and to invite you like Jesus invites all of us to turn from our own way and our sin and to trust in Jesus. The scriptures plead with us in Hebrews that today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, if you sense his calling you to turn from your sin and trust in him, then don't delay. Let today be the day of your salvation in which you trust in him. <clears throat> it's an invitation to salvation, but it's also an invitation to following Christ as a, as a believer. 
And so to you who have trusted in Christ, my question for us is when we leave this place, are we confident that we too are no longer living for our kingdom, but for the kingdom of our beloved Savior, Jesus? Are, are, are we actively in our daily life seeking to examine our hearts, repent of sin, repent of putting ourselves on the throne of our hearts. So, so easy to, to kind of uh, allow, uh, we allow ourselves to sneak back up on that throne, to sneak back up on calling the shots and having it our way and for things being according uh, to, to how we see best. Are we actively examining our hearts, dethroning ourselves and, and putting Jesus in his rightful place? Are we being reminded of the words of Jesus when he says that we're to seek first the kingdom of God. So many of the other things that we busy ourselves with, as important as they are and as essential as it is for us to take them seriously, if we allow them to control our hearts, then Jesus doesn't have the rightful place in our hearts. So he says these things will, will take care of themselves when we seek first the kingdom. The king has come, according to Mark 1, 14 through 15. The question for every believer who's trusted in him as their savior and king, are you living today as if he's really king? Does it really matter? A few, few weeks ago, a month ago now, Britain got a new king. It was pretty cool to see all the stuff surrounding the, the events and the ceremony around it and the life of the queen. But you know, it really hadn't made a much of a difference in my life that there is a new king on the throne in England. I don't think I thought about it since it happened. I did read some stuff about it, but it didn't make much of a difference. Jesus is a king who's been enthroned, and he was enthroned through the cross and through his resurrection. And though we can live as if it doesn't matter, friends, it matters and is of eternal significance. He's on the throne. Are we living like he's on the throne? All lies on Jesus. He steps out of Nazareth and he begins to declare the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. My prayer is that we would, we would repent and believe, perhaps for the first time in salvation or for the thousandth time as a follower of Christ, reminded of our need for him and his provision for us.